Welcome and thank you for joining us for the Church by the Glades podcast. If you would like more information about Church by the Glades, including service times and directions, visit cbglades.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. Just if you will remain standing for a moment as I read you from God's Word, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is uh, Pastor Moses, his final sermon to his people, just before they stepped into the promised land. He says, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you in the land you may greatly increase, in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, your God of your fathers, promised you. I love this passage. Yeah, you can clap what God said. Because he describes in this a blessing so big that one generation cannot contain it. A God so good that his blessings spill over from the parents to the children, then someday to their children. I want everything heaven has for me and my family. Anybody else? Anybody else here at campus? Go ahead and be seated. What is up, Church by the Glaze? I want to jump right into the text. As you find your seat, if you have your Bible, find Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's way back in the Old Testament. It's book number 5. Uh, we're studying a journey for the last few weeks, a journey from basically from bondage to blessing. How the people of God back in that ancient day had been slaves for generations. But this new generation is about to walk in freedom. And we've been thinking about our lives. We're thinking about our hurts and our hangups and our habits, the things that hold us back, the thing in your life you tried to change before and didn't get the job done. We all have an issue, don't we? Come on, we all have a toxic behavior. We all have a negative attitude. We have a habit or addiction. Raise your hand if there's something you want to change in your life. Anybody have something you want to change in your life? Yeah. And you probably, like me, tried before. And it didn't happen. And it wasn't for a lack of effort. You were resolved. You were intense. You prayed about it. Maybe you brought some other nice people in the process to hold you accountable. But after a while, if you don't change, you just resign yourself to the fact that it is what it is. This is my issue. I guess I'll limp through life with this brokenness and bondage and cover it the best I can. And I know deep down, maybe I, I'm a dumpster fire or I'm a hot mess. But guess what? I think this is your season to get free. My God is all up into freedom. So I love here is um, one of the best pastors and leaders in history is Pastor Moses. It's his last sermon. It's the book, of, the book of Deuteronomy. So this story called the Exodus, this journey from bondage to the promised land, is those next four books after Genesis. So Exodus through Deuteronomy. And this is his last word to the people he loves so much. He's, he's about to die in just a very short time. So he preaches like a four-hour sermon. That's the way I want to go out. So whoever preached four hours, you know I'm getting close to the end. And it's a great read, but he reiterates the promises that God has for his people. And we'll pick it up in verse 4. We read together the first three verses. And in verse 4 and verse 5, my gosh, this is a very, very big deal. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ready? One, two, three. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There's a lot of talk throughout the Old Testament about commandments, 
regulations. In fact, the first three verses talks about decrees and laws and commandments. And you might assume that's what God's all about. God is the, the, the rule-making God. Better keep the rules, don't break the rules. Listen, God's about love. And by the way, this is a radical truth in ancient religion. Ancient religions, the gods were often capricious or mean and keep the rules or they zap you from heaven. Our God's a God of love. In fact, I would argue the Bible is not about a religion as much as a love relationship, a divine romance. Now, every romance has a few rules. Parents, you have rules for your children. You have unwritten rules for your spouse. So there are some rules intrinsic to any powerful and intimate relationship. But God says, here's the main thing. I want your love, the totality of your love. So this is called, this verse, verse, uh, verse four, verse five, it's called the Shema in Hebrew. It's the uh, Israeli confession of faith. It's, it's the Hebrew pledge of, pledge of allegiance. In fact, it was such a big deal that a good Jew would re- re- repeat these verses multiple times a day. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 22, when asked what's the greatest commandment, he quoted the Shema. Love God with all your heart, soul, he added mind and strength. And so you asked a Jew in Jesus' day, hey, of all the verses in the Old Testament, there are 39 wonderful books in your Old Testament. I think uh, 23,145 verses. They didn't have verses back in the day. That's a subdivision added years later. You said, what's the most important statement? They say, those two verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one God. Love the Lord with all your hearts, with all your soul, with all your strength. The God of heaven wants a love relationship with you. So that's a revelation. That's an incredible truth. Anytime the Bible gives you incredible truth, you got to ask yourself, what do I do with it? How do I apply this truth to my life? And you'll be shocked to find out right after verses four and five, you have verse six. Thank you, Ryan. You have verse six. (laughs) Verse six is the first action step with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Lord is God. Love God with all that you have. And it says, so in verse six, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. It's not just something we say in a religious context. It's just as a ritual we go through or a statement of our faith. It's it's something authentic. It's heart deep. So God says, love me, not just with your words, but with everything. And then the action step that follows up might surprise you. Verse seven's on the screen right now. And I say three, loudly read the first word. Here we go, ready? One, two, three. Impress, Impress. that's a strong word. Impress them on your Moms and dads, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down. And we, okay, so, so the statement says, as soon as I understand that God wants this heart deep love relationship, not just part of my life, not just a religious section of my life, just a little, not just a little slice of my Sunday morning, but he wants all of me in a romance. As soon as I get that, impress that on my kids. The word impress means to be protective, prioritized. Uh, highly intentional, proactive, immersive, impress it, impress it. So you missed the last few weeks. Where have you been? We've been having fun in church by the glaze, man. By the way, you're doing a great job inviting people. We're growing almost every single week. We've got this cool thing we're doing across town at First Baptist Church as well. So thank you. Thank you. Keep coming. Keep coming. Every week is an investment in yourself and in your spiritual health. But it's all about this idea of changing that dysfunctional area of your life. I think, why does the Bible say when good things like this, if you want God's blessing, that's to you, your children, and maybe your children's children, a multi-generational blessing, you got to impress, be intentional. I was thinking about dysfunction. You know, our addictions, our hurts, our habits, our hangups, those we don't have to be intentional about. Dysfunction, says Genesis chapter three, is like a disease. 
You know, sin and, and dysfunction and brokenness is like a disease. Diseases naturally spread. They're, they're contagious, right? They're, they're, they're catchy. Remember COVID? I guess it's still a thing, but back in the day, it was a really big thing, right? You'd have to work to give, give, you know, give COVID to people. It just happened organically. I think since the fall in Genesis chapter three, brokenness is contagious. But to see good things happen in my life, with my kids, maybe someday their kids, I gotta be highly intentional. I got, I got to impress it. And if you're saying, well, David, that's kind of a pessimistic, negative way to look at life. I'll tell you again, I'm a positive person, but it's just real. I mean, it's just simple. Ever notice that bad habits are hard to break? Why good habits are tough to keep? It's the same dynamic. So if I wanna see a blessing so big, it spills out into the life of my children, I must impress this upon them. So let's talk about this idea of God blessing you and God changing you and God transforming, maybe not just you, but the trajectory of your life. There's been dysfunction in your life for generations. I think God wants to change all of that garbage and bring about something very new and powerful beginning today. So before we talk about that, I wanna to talk to you about Baptism, baptism. Let me take a very awkward left turn to baptism. Why? Because we're going to baptize at your campus today. We're going to baptize right now after this service at all of our campuses. Oh, you should give it up more. Give it up to be a little excited. Baptism is such a cool action step. And I know you didn't come thinking about being baptized ahead of time, but maybe you should be baptized today. So at all our campuses in Palm Beach and Broward, we're gonna baptize on the spot today per your request. Uh, Dade County, Dade County campuses. Give it up for our Dade County campuses. They're prison campuses, so we can't baptize you today. But if you let a prayer partner know today, that's your desire. At the first opportunity where they let us, we'll baptize you. And by the way, the baptisms in prison are amazing. And the reason this actually fits with the topic is this series is about freedom and the way I express my freedom in Christ. Express that he has set me free from the power of sin and death is baptism, is my battle flag. So if you've not been baptized, you should be baptized. I'm gonna encourage you, spiritual impulse buy. Do it today, do it today, do it today. You're like, well, David, why, why? Because I wasn't planning on getting wet in front of people today. Why should I get baptized? Fair question, I love the question, why? I say, here's the main reason why Jesus commanded it. He modeled it, he himself was baptized at the initiation of his three-year ministry. But at the end of his ministry, again, we're studying the last sermon of Moses. Let me show you the last words of Jesus. Right before he ascends to heaven, it's a huge thing. If you ask me, you know, you ask a Jew in the first century what's the most important verses in the Old Testament, this is to say the Shema. Ask me as a New Testament Christian, what's the most important verses in the New Testament? I'd probably say higher on the list, the Great Commission. On the screen behind me, it says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, 20, Jesus speaking right before he goes to the Father. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look at this part. Teaching them to observe all, all that I've commanded you. So he said, teach them all the stuff. Yeah. Like Jesus said, I taught you all kinds of good things. Share it all. I taught you about heaven. Teach them that. Taught you about hell. Teach them that. Taught you about forgiveness and love and parenting and marriage. All these great things. What to do with your anxiety. How to even pay your taxes. I taught you. Teach them all that stuff. But funny, he gets out his little Sharpie highlighter, underscores one thing of the many things, baptism. So if you ever wonder what's the best reason to be baptized, you don't have to understand all the nuances of theology, just know that Jesus commanded his disciples to announce their freedom in Christ by way of baptism. 
So really quickly, I'm gonna give you like a three and a half uh, minute theology of baptism. So when, when, when is the biblical time to be baptized? Great question. The progression of when we see baptism every single time in the Bible is someone trusts Christ by faith, their own personal decision, and then they're baptized. Typically ASAP, right away. They, they, get, they trust Jesus and they're looking for water right away. So they trust Christ, then they're baptized. You never see someone the other way around. Someone, uh, they're baptized, then they trust Christ. So it begs the question, if you were um, christened or baptized as a baby, uh, is, is that the biblical model? I would, say, I would say no. Now, you might feel a little defensive. Go, oh, David, are you saying that was bad? My parents said that was evil or wicked? No, no, I think what they did was beautiful. It's just not biblical. There's not an example, one place in the Bible where a baby is baptized. But I love that. I love the spirit behind it. We do baby dedication in our church. But your parents, if they had you christened, what were they trying to say? They're trying to say that you're amazing, that you are a gift from God. In fact, they're trying to nudge you towards God. But at some point, you have to make your own personal God decision. So if you were baptized at any point in your life before you were saved, uh, I would recommend you get the order right. And if you were christened as a baby, once you complete what your parents began and choose baptism as a person old enough to make your own choice. Look at you staring at me. Anybody here baptized a baby? Who was christened as a baby? Anybody? You're not alone. Very, very common. Awesome. Beautiful. Complete what your parents began. And by the way, another question is, well, how? Because y'all got like a dunking tank over there or something. That's kind of awkward. I mean, it really is getting full-grown people fully wet in front of other full-grown people. A little weird. That is the way they baptize in the Bible. This is not even an issue of theology. This is an issue uh, of vocabulary. The word baptizo, the Greek word in the Bible, translated in English, baptized, literally means to plunge or dunk under. So every single time you see baptism in the Bible, it's never sprinkling or christening or, or pouring. Someone is immersed. Read Romans chapter six, describes the meaning, shows the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and by the way, if you think, David, you're from a tradition, you're from, I think, a Baptist tradition, you guys baptize. This is actually something universally accepted among theologians of all different backgrounds. Let me give you one example quickly, a very famous theologian, uh, Thomas Aquinas, you might recognize that name. He has a high school name for him here in Broward County, but they play really good football. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, a famous Catholic scholar, said, in immersion, the setting forth of the burial of Christ is more plainly expressed in which this manner of baptizing is more commendable. So there's really no debate. Whether the person's a Presbyterian or the theologian's a Methodist or Catholic or whatever, in the Bible, they all acknowledge baptism is by immersion. So here, we try to do things not the most convenient way or the cool way, the most biblical way is our preference. So if you've not been baptized after salvation by immersion, you should do that today. Because the right time to do the right thing is right now. And what you're thinking is, but I'm not prepared to get wet. I, I, I picked out my clothes. I'm looking good, David. This will be terrible. It'll be awkward. I have dinner plan. Don't worry. We got you covered. Uh, if you choose baptism today, uh, you let us know, and we have all the things you need. We have, we have, you. so you'll go to a private area, take off your clothes, put on our clothes. We have, we have gym shorts for you. We have a towel. We have flip-flops. I found out we're going to give you flip-flops. We'll give you flip-flops. There you go. Free flip-flops for somebody. And then we give you a t-shirt. So you wear this t-shirt while you're baptized. Um... Put those images back on the screen. I think you see people being baptized on the screen. And so, you know, you get baptized in our stuff. Give us back the gym shorts, please. We'll wash those for tomorrow. And uh, keep the T-shirt as a memento of your celebration of your freedom. Now, don't get baptized for a free T-shirt. 
but we have, we have, we have t-shirts, so why not do it today? The right time to do the right thing is always right now. And so I want to encourage you towards that. Okay, back to the whole generational thing. Because I want the best. I want everything God has in my life, but I have three kids. Could God do something so amazing it would spill out literally into the life of my kids? So we're studying uh, this event called the Exodus, and it's bigger than the book that bears the name. The Exodus event covers uh, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So here we're just before the people of God are about to step into the promised land. They have dreamt of this for so long, and it's a transition. They've been in bondage for generations, 430 years as slaves in Egypt. That's like between 16, 17, 21, 22 generations. All they have known is this function of oppression. But this is their moment. So they pray and they ask God for all these years, God, send us a hero, send us a leader, send us a deliverer. And when God sends Moses, he's not what they expected. And if you read the account, it's almost comical. They fight him at every turn. They complain and they whine, they second guess him, they long for Egypt, they grumble, they grumble. And every once in a while they play this, the children, the, the poor children, or they played the children card. Let me show you one example. Uh, you take your Bibles, why don't you go to Isaiah, go to Isaiah chapter 54, Isaiah chapter 54. In one second, I'll, I'll be there. It's gonna make sense, I promise. But you'll see here in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 17, verse three, the people are complaining. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our lives die? They're so drama, they're such drama queens. Our, our children, oh, our poor children. I, look, I don't know about you, but my preference is, I think personally, I'd rather fight for freedom in the wilderness than watch my children live as slaves but they didn't feel that way. And they're like, the children, our children. Oh, you're being, listen, listen. Um, I, I told you week number one, in fact, I think I've told you every time I've spoken, anytime you have a quest for freedom in your life, especially if your dysfunction involves other people, if people benefit from your bondage or they profit from your pain, they will fight against your freedom every single time. So why the story of Exodus to Deuteronomy, these 40 years is a freedom story. It's also a conflict story. They go hand in hand. The battle for your freedom will be a conflict story. Think about all the greatest movements toward freedom in history. Uh, the American Revolution. Uh, so we signed the Declaration of Independence, right? 1776, July 4th. Well, the moment we signed that document, uh, the Brits didn't hop in their boats and go home. There's years of carnage and conflict and warfare and bloodshed, the Civil War. In the 1860s, it was kind of a stalemate for the first few years. In fact, the South won more victories than the North. What turned the tide? Many historians would say when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation January 1st, 1863, and clarified the battles for the freedom of people in the South, all of a sudden we had clarity and there was a victory. Uh, civil rights struggle in the 1960s. It's not just people marching with posters, there's conflict. There's violence, there's ugly racism, there's lynching. Anytime you see a quest for freedom, it's always a conflict story. So let's back up, let's back up. So this is a, right before Deuteronomy chapter six, the people of God step into the promised land. Moses, now 120 years old, delivers his last sermon. But let's back up 40 years before in the first verses of Exodus, when Moses just begins this, uh, this leadership quest, 
Uh, he rolls into Pharaoh's palace and says the whole thing. Hey, hey, Pharaoh, uh, my God, the God of the Hebrews has said, let my people free. Pharaoh says, who is this God? I don't know who this God is. And Moses said, I'm about to introduce you. You remember that story? And all of a sudden, the 10 plagues going on. Now, the crazy thing, I think the reason that Pharaoh resists was, well, number one, the slaves were a commodity. He cared not for their lives. He cared where they could produce. Right? Did not want to lose their production. Uh, and then also, Pharaoh thought himself a small g god. You recall that the Egyptians had a pantheon of deities and gods. They had dozens of gods. But in this time, uh, the pharaohs thought themselves to be divine, God in the flesh, if you will. And uh, Pharaoh was not a god, but he was really powerful. Scholars believe that this encounter between Pharaoh, we don't know exactly what Pharaoh, and Moses occurred at a time, at a time called the New Kingdom. That's uh, the 16th century through the 11th century BC. And the Egyptians had incredible power. In fact, gosh, Pharaoh's most powerful man on the earth. He's the lone uh, leader of a superpower. If he has a, issues a law or decree, there's no place of appeal. Uh, there's no Supreme Court. There's no Congress. What he says, life or death, that is the final word. Uh, he could raise, historians tell us, an army of 100,000 soldiers overnight. They had the best uh, military technology of the age. It says in Exodus chapter 14, verse 7, that they were pursuing the Hebrews on the way to freedom. He had 600 chariots plus other chariots. Meaning this probably had thousands of chariots and 600 of the latest, greatest chariots. Uh, every soldier would have armor. Uh, they would have shields and spears. Uh, they would have swords. The Egyptians knew how to make uh, iron weapons and bronze weapons. The, the Hebrews wouldn't figure that out, gosh, till centuries later under the time of King David. So again, he had a massive army with incredible weapons. So he thought himself, thought himself a king or a god or invincible. He was formidable. And here rolls in Moses, an octogenarian, a stuttering, shabby shepherd. Wow. Say, let my people go. My God says to him, he's like, who is your God? And why should I listen to you? I got this army. I got an entourage. I have bodyguards. I have chariots. I have weapons. I have swords and spears with tips of steel. What do you think? See, here's what's going on. See, Moses is learning and Pharaoh's about to figure out something that Isaiah said with clarity. If you have Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verse 17, it's one of those great verses in the Bible. It's on the screen right now. In fact, I'll just tackle the first half, the first part of the verse. It says on the screen, ready loudly, no that is formed against you shall prosper. That's one of those verses, I mean, you're right. That's one of those verses the Christians, we put on our T-shirts and mugs, bumper stickers, by the way, I don't like bumper stickers on my car, but I love bumper stickers on your car. I find them very entertaining. You know, your kid's an honor student. You love your Labradoodle. That's great. I love what you believe in. So you use your car as your billboard. But this verse is so good. No weapon that's formed against you. So prosper. And we look at this verse as a positive statement, and it is. It is so wonderfully optimistic and faith-filled. But at the same time, it implies this. There's an enemy out there you have, and he has weapons. Yeah. 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 So good. He has weapons. So I think it's so important for a Christian to realize when you face static in this world, when this world is hostile and you have haters, there's something taking place behind the scenes. It says in Ephesians chapter six, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. I think it's imperative behind that, uh, I don't know, uh, that nasty neighbor, that bossy boss, that crabby client, uh, that bully, whether in your classroom or cyberspace, behind them and behind their words, and behind their deeds, there's something taking place that is unseen. And there's somebody here and you're kind of new and you're, you're putting things together. And go, Wait a minute, David, are you talking about the devil? 
Are you talking about the devil? Wait, time out, time out. Do you all here at Church by the Grace believe in the devil? David, I heard you have an education, a couple of degrees. You don't believe in the devil. Fair question. Now, the devil being like, I don't know, this dude in red pajamas with horns and a pitchfork. No, I don't believe in that. I do believe in the devil. And stay with me. Don't log off, by the way. I think an intelligent person can believe in the devil. Now, if you don't, I respect that. In fact, you're not alone. Now, you're in a minority, but you're not alone. In fact, I saw recently, I think a very credible source, a 2022 Gallup poll that measured spiritual uh, issues among Americans. It said nine out of 10 Americans believe in God. They're theistic. Uh, 81% of Americans believe in heaven. That was encouraging. Seven out of 10 Americans believe in the devil. Now, notice that's less than believe in God, but it's still 70% believe in the devil. Here's the crazy thing. That's up from years before 2020. It was only 60% of people before 2020. I wonder what changed. Because people are more cynical and skeptical, I feel like, today. I think what's changed is people are paying attention. There's a lot of just bad stuff out there. I mean, I, I, the world's beautiful, but it's so broken sometimes. What we see in the news, you know, the violence and the racism, the hatred, the incredible chaos in the Middle East. If we go back generations, just a couple of generations, we see carnage. We see World War I, World War II. We see the Holocaust when six million plus Jews are exterminated by, by, by the Germans. Uh, Germany wasn't some weird, crazy, illiterate nation. It was an industrialized, highly educated, we thought socially sophisticated. And you see that kind of hate. And by the way, genocide didn't stop in World War II. In Bosnia, in Dufar, in Rwanda, in Cambodia, the same sad story plays out time and time again. So how do you explain it? You don't believe in the devil? I get it. I respect that. But man, there's a whole lot of evil out there. How do you explain Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein? Is it just poor politics? Is it just crazy ideologies? Is it just psychology? Was Hitler's diapers just wrapped too tight when he was a baby? <laughs> or can you allow for the intellectual possibility behind the scenes? There's an intelligent force manipulating, conniving, strategizing, scheming. I think you got to be open to it. But the main reason as a Christian, I believe in the existence of the devil is Jesus clearly believed in the devil. Not as a personification or a metaphor. He believed in his spirit being a fallen angel with a legion of demons. So anything Jesus believed in, I believe in. Now there's somebody in the room and you're a Christian, like finally, finally, David's preaching on the devil. I've been waiting for this. Listen, slow your roll, slow your roll. Because I think, you know, there's two mistakes. We ignore the devil or we fixate in the devil. In fact, someone way smarter than me, C.S. Lewis, the amazing author, Oxford professor, he said this, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in him. He himself is equally pleased by both errors. Yeah, yeah. So again, I don't want to be seeing a devil behind every tree. Back in the 70s, comedian Flip Wilson always said, the devil made me do it. No, sometimes I'm dumb all by myself. (laughs) But at the same time, to ignore that spiritual reality, I think, is naive. So uh, Moses had an enemy, Pharaoh. Uh, The Hebrews had an enemy, the slave masters of Egypt, or the whole slave culture. You have an enemy. And the Bible says he has weapons. He has weapons. He's described as the prince of this world. He has dominion in this world. He is a dangerous foe. Pharaoh was dangerous. But again, I love verses like Isaiah 54, verse 17, which says, no weapon 
forged against you will prosper. How does that work out? How does it work out? Let's use Pharaoh as our example. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh was the most dangerous uh, man in the world, powerful man, thought himself a small G God, had an army of 100,000. They had spears and they had swords and they had shields and they had chariots. But when God steps up to humble Egypt and Pharaoh himself, what value were his swords and spears against frogs or billions of flies or trillions of locusts or boils on the Egyptian bodies? or hell falling from heaven with fire the size of bowling balls. What value are chariots, the best war machines in the world at that day, the ultimate military technology when the life-giving Nile turns to blood? Those weapons don't work. So God says you have an enemy and he's strategic and he's evil and he has weapons, but God has not left you defenseless. Read as your homework, read your homework, read Ephesians chapter six. Maybe the best part of the whole Bible where Saul peels back the layer from the visible to the invisible. And he says, be careful, Christian, you have an enemy, the devil. And by the way, Jesus said the devil is a murderer, a thief, and a liar. I mean, there's anything you have in your life that is precious, he wants to destroy. He's never trying to do you a favor. When he tempts you, it's not, oh man, poor Bob, poor Bob, poor old Bob. He's so tired, hardworking, so loyal. He deserves a little pleasure. He's setting an evil trap every single time. That's why Paul says, so guess what? You got to put on the full armor of God. Christian, every day put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, belt of truth, feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of your salvation. Then you have one piece of offensive gear. It is called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is our weapon where you do him damage. So if you need to change some part of your life where there's an addiction, a habit, a dysfunction, memorize a verse, find your verse. Learn it like your name, like your address. Use it as a weapon every time he tempts you. Share this truth from God's word. He cannot tolerate it. It says in that chapter that using the armor of God, we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Greek word there means the strategies, the strategies. Again, he's an intelligent being. And as I think about my life and the people in my life and the brokenness that, again, blessing does not stay contained to one generation. Brokenness does not stay contained to one generation. Some of us grew up in families, we've had generations of, well, slavery. I, I don't mean you know, physical change. I mean, there's been addiction, there's been violence. Maybe in your family for generations, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, uh, no one stays married, no one stays employed, no one stays out of jail, no one ever gets a degree. But God's given you the power to change that dysfunction. You are a new creation in Christ. He renews your mind every single day if you'll allow him to. I don't have to pass on to my children the same dysfunction that my parents passed on to me. This can be your day, your line in the sand. Again, the devil schemes against us. Let me close with this idea. Um, if y'all know me, I'm a pretty focused person. I, I think I have a sanctified ambition. I mean, I, I work hard, I'm passionate for what I do. At the same time, um, I'm not easily offended. People know me like I'm a kind person. I let things roll off my back. So it takes a lot to make me mad. In fact, I've joked with the staff, if you ever make me mad, you probably screwed up because I don't get mad very often. And um, I was just thinking about this truth in the Bible. So the devil schemes. So I don't get mad easily, but if I find out that you've been watching me, you've been studying me, you've been scheming against me, looking for my flaws, my you've been diving deep into my personal history looking for any weakness or pain in my past that you can exploit to damage me, 
to ruin my reputation, to diminish my legacy. And then on top of that, I find you've been, you've been watching the woman I love most in this world. You've been watching her, looking for any weakness in her life to do her damage. And then I find out on top of that, my three kids, you've been scheming against them. You've been spying on them. You've been watching for their weaknesses, their flaws. You're looking for anything in my past to take them down. I'm typically easy going, but at that point, oh, hell no. It's on. It's on. You come after me, that's one thing. But my family, my marriage, my children, no way. If the Bible is true in what it says, and it is, there's a spiritual war taking place. Y'all need to pick up your armor and make a decision. So I know what happened in the past was bad, but guess what? You are not doomed to recycle the past sin that you grew up with. I've said every week, I know when you grow up in dysfunction, dysfunction, you know it's wrong as a kid, but dysfunction is all you know. And when it's all you know, you tend to just repeat that dis dis dysfunctional behavior right now. But this is your time to change everything in Jesus' name. There's an enemy, he is scheming against you. I'm not gonna repeat that dysfunction. My kids won't be touched by what I was touched by. I saw this in my family. My dad broke the chain in my family. So it's your turn. Dads and moms, we're called to break the chains. My brothers and sisters in Christ, God did not call us to bondage. Chains are not appropriate for God's people. The chain breaks with me. The chain breaks with me. Thanks again for listening to this week's message. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today. To hear more messages like this, make sure you subscribe and share with your friends. Don't forget to stay connected with us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at CBGlades at Pastor D. Hughes.